I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley. And I am Ian Rowe. And we are here today with the podcast, Are You Kidding Me? We are from the American Enterprise Institute. I am a resident fellow there, and Ian is a visiting fellow. But today we are recording in the Manhattan Institute studio in New York City, home of City Journal's 10 Blocks podcast, which you can also find on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. Our podcast is really devoted to the question of uh, systems that are supposed to serve kids and help kids, but seem to be failing for a whole variety of reasons. And today, uh, we're actually going to start by talking a little bit about education. There was a recent report out from something called the Network for Public Education. They released a study on something called the the Federal Charter Schools Program. So tell us a little bit about this study and uh, what we're supposed to learn from it and what we've actually learned from it, Ian. Yeah. So so in addition to me being an AEI visiting fellow, my day job is actually I'm CEO of Public Prep, which is a network of single gender public charter schools in the Bronx and Manhattan. Yes, yes, yes. Give a busy person uh, more work. You get it done. But, you know, in our schools in the Bronx... You know, in one of the districts that we serve, if you're a boy and you start ninth grade, four years later, only 2% graduate from high school ready for college, meaning that you start ninth grade four years later, either you've dropped out or you've actually graduated with your high school diploma, but you can't do math or reading without remediation if you go to college, right? So just think about that, right? So... As a result, there are a lot of parents in the Bronx that really want better options for their kids. So, for example, our schools, our Bronx schools, have somewhere between three to 4,000 kids on the wait list. And it's heartbreaking. The best we can say to many of our parents is that the best we can do is put you on an excruciatingly long wait list, right? What so, is it like? It's like 10,000 now or something well, like that? Well, in New York City, across across all charter schools, there's something like 60,000 children are on wait lists, right? Amazing. And these 60,000 folks generally are low-income parents of color who have been in communities where for generations they have had schools that, let's just put it this way, have not been doing well by their kids, right? Yeah, they, they know the schools are bad because many of them graduated from the schools themselves. Of course. And so... Whereas middle class and affluent families have choice, right, where they can move to neighborhoods that have great public schools or they can go to private schools like certain senators running for president, many folks in low-income communities don't have that choice. And that's the context in which this new report just came out around the federal charter schools program. And what and what is this federal charter schools program that's so horrific? Right. It's not a lot of money that we're really talking about in the Oh, my gosh. Relative to the amount. Oh, yeah. That's a, that's a whole other <laughs> podcast right there. Right. But here is one of the few instances in which a federal program is actually highly effective. And our schools have benefited from this. So tell us what the program is supposed yeah, so, to do. So very simply, this revenue stream creates an incentive for charter networks like ours that get authorized by the state. None of this happens unless the state says you have proven that you are offering a high quality tuition free option for families. So when a, when a charter school gets authorized in their particular state, they can actually apply to the federal government, so this charter school CSP program, and it'll give you, depending on the state, somewhere between $500,000 to $1.2 million per network to be able to provide many of the resources that you need, especially when you first open a school. So what, is, what does that money go to? Like, what did, did, you, did you qualify for this program? Yes, and we what did. did you, yes, and what did you use the money for? Yeah. So when we typically open a new school, let's say we're opening an elementary school, 
you typically open small. Like you might only open with kindergarten or kindergarten and first grade. Right. But you still hire the principal, the academic directors, the social workers, the special ed teachers, all the the sort of overhead that's necessary to run a school. Well, guess what? That makes a school more expensive, especially in the first few years, because you don't have enough kids right. to be able to financially support all of the in our view, the resources that are really needed to, to really provide an exceptional education for those kids. So that CSP money is critical, especially in the first those few years. Those early years. Okay. Yeah. So and tell me what this, this, what did this report say? Because the report seems to be suggesting that this money is just being wasted somehow or that, you know, it's being thrown away on useless, yeah, right. useless programs. The, the premise of the report somehow is making the claim that all this money is being spent on charter schools that are closing. And it's like rampantly these charter schools are closing. Well, but actually the numbers are something like only 1.7% of CSP funded charter schools have closed, meaning that nearly 100% of the dollars are being spent on schools that are serving low-income kids. And I think this is one of those examples where there's a political agenda that's opposed to charter schools. And a report is produced that makes it seem like all this money is being wasted. There's, and, a, there's absolutely a political agenda. And, and the, other, the other interesting thing about charter schools is, of course, they can be closed. I mean, correct. so many schools that are terrible cannot be closed. I mean, this is, you know, I'm sure this is going to come up now that Mike Bloomberg is running for president. I mean, he went around actually trying to close bad schools and people lost their minds. Our, but with charter schools, this happens. You right. know, it's a fact of life. And in fact, our all-girls schools in, in Manhattan is in a building that prior to us was a charter school that was closed because they weren't serving kids academically. And for us in the charter world, we applauded that. Yep. You know, we challenged our colleagues like, hey, guys, you got to do better. If you don't, guess what? You don't have the privilege to run a school forever, you have to demonstrate that we're actually helping kids because then we're no better than the schools that, you know, in the Bronx where only 2% of, of kids are graduating from high school ready for college. That is the whole point. The CSP program is designed to help charter networks that, again, have been authorized by the state. It's not as if this is some fly-by-night. And we have to meet some pretty rigorous standards, especially in states like New York, that have strong authorizers. Right. And this is, I mean, and this is a way, you know, frankly, for the federal government, which, you know, in this administration is thankfully very supportive of charters, to be able to offer, you know, some small help to charters. I mean, they're they're at such a disadvantage, especially in a city like New York, where the mayor is clearly is, has, has it in for them. Yep. Does not want to give buildings, yep. you know, when when clearly these charter schools are outperforming other schools, you know, is trying to screw them over in all sorts of ways. And so the federal government can just say, look, look, here is a little extra money to try to help you get over that initial hump Especially of in, the, in those critical first few years. And that's the point. Look, we want to be held accountable. We want to serve kids. None of us in the charter sector are doing this because we want to create mediocre options for kids. Hold us accountable and then leverage the federal government. Like this is one of the few ways that the federal federal government can actually make a huge difference in the lives of kids. All right. Well, let's let's hope the program continues. But there are a number of politicians who have really been ranting about the dangers and horrors of charter schools recently. Yeah. Somehow, if you're a Democratic uh, presidential candidate now, whether you're Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, somehow your bona fides now are to not just be moderate, but you've got to be extreme. So Elizabeth Warren has come out and said she would eliminate federal funds for the CSP program. Sanders is the same. 
Like, why? And again, and the irony is when she was asked about this, she said, you know, she was asked, wait a minute, so if you were in a community and you didn't like your school and you wanted to choose something else, she went on this long, in this interview, to tirade about, well, if you're that parent, then you should go advocate for better building, go help the janitor, you, you should go out and volunteer to do all right, these things. Right. Meanwhile, in her own situation, Guess what she did? She sent her child to a private school whose tuition is something like fifteen to twenty thousand dollars per year. Well, good for you, Senator Warren. That's not an option that most low-income kids have. And and by the way, it's not casting dispersions on you. Like you exercised your choice, as every person should do, if you think that that's what's best for your child. So good for you. But don't deprive low-income families of the opportunity to do that in their own community. It just seems like such an, an obvious argument to the public and so embarrassing for these candidates when it's obvious that they're, you know, they're hypocrites on this issue. I would, you know, it, it would be nice. Cory Booker came out a few weeks ago, finally expressing publicly his support of charter schools in a New York Times op-ed. And, you know, maybe now with uh, Bloomberg in the race, there'll be a little bit more pressure, you know, to deviate from the liberal orthodoxy on this, right, but, well, but yeah. probably not much. I mean, you know, who, who, which of these candidates is going to get the teachers union endorsement matters a great deal. They throw around more money than just about any other special interest on the left. And so that that holds a lot of sway. Well, this is where parent power matters, because a couple of weeks ago, Elizabeth Warren was at an event and a couple moms and, and a, a, leader, a leader in education reform, Howard Fuller, confronted her directly and said, why are you taking away my right to do something that you freely did in your own life? And, you know, it was pretty powerful. She's caught on record. And then she said, you know what, I'm going to go back and rethink this. So, so we'll, we'll see what the rethinking ends up being. But the power of parent voice is something that needs to be evaluated. And generally, there is this assumption that I think, I think they think that these candidates think that they can sort of just take the vote of low-income minority parents for granted. And so therefore, they can adopt policies like rejecting the CSP grant or opposing charters because they think these folks are not going to vote for the opposition anyway. So let's just do, and, yeah. and I think that that's actually not a strategy that they should depend on. So speaking of parent power, there was a story uh, recently in the Chronicle of Social Change about a group of parents in Los Angeles who are protesting the child welfare agency there because they think they are removing too many kids from their homes just based on a number versus the actual conditions of kids in those homes, right? Right. So this is, as I may have mentioned in our last podcast, I think, you know, the, the, the data here is very difficult to, to kind of parse. I mean, everybody sort of is interested in this headline, for instance, like, you know, foster care numbers reach record rates or numbers of kids removed reach record rates or something like that. And maybe that's bad and maybe it's good. And maybe we haven't removed enough kids. I mean, exactly. the, the questions we need to be asking are, you know, has this child been severely neglected or abused? Those are the numbers that I care about. And if we put them back, does that happen again? Is there a repeat maltreatment number we should be looking at? So maybe So we... that sounds child-centered. Yeah, I that, know. I, I know. mean, come on. Are, are you, you kidding, kidding me? me? <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously. Um, so, so this group of parents, you know, there's a, there's a group actually that called the, the Working Mother Network. It was sponsored by the Working Mother Network and the Poor People's Campaign. And they've actually put together a booklet for how to deal with Child Protective Services, if they come knocking on your door and want to ask you questions about the treatment of your children. Some of these tips are actually not terrible. For right. instance, they advise you to not start screaming at the person who is at your door. 
and to, you know, have a, a calm conversation right. with them about things. And keep track of the classes that right. you've taken that demonstrate your commitment to being a better parent. That sounds reasonable. Right. These are, I think these are very good ideas, especially because what's happened is there is a, is a very popular narrative out there now that Child Protective Services is out to get you, that there's a conspiracy. I mean, some of these low-income neighborhoods, you will see signs saying that child welfare workers, you know, they say they want, you know, to get your kids vaccinated. They're trying to infect them with diseases. I mean, you know, the conspiracy right, theories that develop, and they start at a very high level, which is child welfare is racist. Child welfare just wants to take away the kids of black parents or of Hispanic parents. And that gets filtered down into the community at such a level that there is a huge fundamental mistrust. And these people who really are charged with trying to help kids, and many of whom, by the way, are members of that community In themselves, themselves mm -hmm. are suddenly, you know, viewed as the enemy when they come to the door. And the first reaction action is to have a confrontation or even a violent confrontation with them. So those tips, I think, that are in this are good. But then you have this question of, look, are they removing too many kids? And like I said, we need to look at the data there. But the claim is they're just removing kids from, from homeless because they're right. poor. I do like to tell people, I mean, I'm a, I am a journalist. I worked for a long time for the Wall Street Journal and for the New York Post. One thing that I think people don't recognize in these stories is that we can't ever get the other side of the story. You can't call CPS and say, what was the real reason you removed this kid? Because that is a private matter, and they are not allowed to share that with a journalist or the public. So you're only going to get the parent's side of the story. Right. And in, and in this particular story, you know, the stories of, of this mom who was protesting that she and her son, you know, she was sick and hospitalized. And as a result, she was unable to pay her rent. So she and her son were homeless. And in this story, they were separated. And he went to a youth foster home and she went to another type of shelter. And they were allowed to see each other every Sunday after church. Now, would it have, would it have been better for both of them to stay in a homeless shelter together? Is, is that, you know, without knowing more of the information, you can't make the assumption that simply because he was removed, that was bad for him as a child. And in fact, Later on in the story, she goes on to say that when they were reunited, it turned out he finished high school. Now he's got a job. He's doing well. And it might be that that, sep that temporary separation for him not to be in a homeless shelter and be instead in a loving foster home could have made the difference, right? Yeah. And sometimes parents are in circumstances, rarely is it just a case where it's just a parent who finds themselves, you know, right. evicted or something like that. Usually there's some other crisis that has led them to that point. And so, you know, often it is temporary. And so the question is, what kind of things can we do to get that parent, you know, back on their feet as quickly as possible? Right. And temporary is the key. But, but it may not be that whatever that fixes, whether it's addiction treatment or whether it's Maybe they're just in the hospital because they have, you know, severe problems and there's no there's no one mental problems. There's no one to take care of that kid. And so how do you give that parent the services and then reunite them as quickly as possible? There's a group in in New York, for instance, called Safe Families, which is actually now all over the country. It's not a, a government program. It's a not private nonprofit organization. And they have adults who can kind of outside of the foster care system offer to take children in over the course of, say, you know, 30 days or something like yeah, that's that. That's incredible. You know, so you, go, you could go to this program and say, 
I need to enter, you know, a residential addiction program or I, you know, I'm having an appendectomy or something else. And there's, you know, there's no safety net. Like I, not a, not a safety, I don't mean a government safety net. I mean, there's no network of people in my life to take care of this child. I don't want this child taken away from me. So I'm going to sort of privately say to people, can you help me? Can you take in my child, you know, over the course of a few weeks or a month so that I can get back on my feet? And, and now, you, right, and that might be treated as a removal, right? right? So someone may look at that and see that as a statistic. Well, they, say, they, in this case, they wouldn't see that as a removal. I just think that that is one, like, sort of outside of government mm-hmm. solution. Instead of just saying, well, you know, leave me alone. I can handle this, you know, CPS, get out of my life. You know, there are, there should be available these, you know, solutions that, that offer to create that network in right. a sense. Non-governmentally. But, e- but absolutely, there should be non-governmental solutions. But even, again, within government, there could have been the same judge who decided, you need help right now. You're in a shelter, so we're going to temporarily place your child in foster care. We're going to, quote unquote, remove the child. But that's a case where it's being made on a humane basis. It's temporary. And hopefully in that time period, the parent is doing things to get themselves back on their feet. It's once again these blanket rules or statistics that make it seem like all these kids are being taken away from their homes when, in fact, it could be the actually right thing to be doing. Right. And I think that, you know, when we're thinking about, you know, sometimes these systems are serving kids well, and we need to sort of give them credit when they are, when they they say, look, you know, we need to come in and intervene. This is not working, and we need to find a, a better solution. And we can't just be focused on, as a parent, you know, what you what you think is best right now, because maybe you're not in a position to decide. And maybe, you know, you have been the victim of all sorts of other things. And we can try to sort those out. But the first level, the first response has to be a child-centered one. It has to be, you know, how can we make sure to protect this child? And that may mean you can't enter a homeless shelter where, you know, who knows what's going on. You know, that's not that a doesn't place sound for a child. Yes. And so the, these agencies have to make those decisions based on a, a child-centered view of the world, not on like a, a Absolutely. Just every, every I mean, I run a network of schools, so we're mandated to report when we see signs yeah. that could be signs of abuse. And- that information then goes to ACS in the case of New York. And hopefully that triggers an operation which is not trying to completely understand and absolve the parent of whatever reasons that these actions may have happened to their child, but is really questioning, is this the right place for this child at this time? And more often than not, we generally agree if, if a child is removed, there's usually a reason for it. And we shouldn't just look at blanket statistics and say, there's some discrimination going on. You could still feel sorry for the parent. You could still say this is a terrible situation and try everything you can to help that parent. And in fact, that's the idea, to give the parent an opportunity now without having all the challenges of raising their child, but give them the time and the space to hopefully do the things in their life that will improve their ability to be a parent. Right. Sometimes I think that the child welfare agency is serving too many masters. I mean, it's their their goal really should be helping the kids. And sometimes that means helping the parents too. And sometimes their interests diverge. And we need to acknowledge that even on a temporary basis, you know, their goal always has to be helping the kid. And we have other agencies out there that also are devoted to helping adults. But the, the child welfare agencies really need to be about the kids. 100%. So. Well, that's our episode for today. 
So thank you, Ian. Thank you, Naomi. You can find our podcast uh, on the AEI website, on iTunes. You can read some of the writing that both Ian and I have done on these and other subjects at the AEI website, which links to other publications that we write for. So thank you so much for joining us. See you next time.